This is Shannon in Durham. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> this time it wasn't me. <laughs> this is Shannon in Durham. Chip in Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 9, and the Sky Full of Stars. Welcome and welcome back, one and all. Thank you very much for coming to listen to our little journey, our little saunter. This is your bi-weekly discussion of all things Babylon 5. And this time, we are joined by another guest. Uh, we have with us Stephen Shapansky. Stephen, how would people possibly know you? I am one of the three co-hosts of uh, a Doctor Who podcast called Radio Free Scarrow that's been going for 178 years now. Never uh, heard also, of it. I know. I'm also uh, um, a co-host on the, the Memory Cheats, another Doctor Who podcast. So I come from the Doctor Never heard Who of world of podcasting. Uh, of course, a show that none of us here have ever seen. No, never. What's that? <laughs> I'm unsure. We, of course, have been hearing... From Erica, every episode, she'll she'll check us in uh, since this is the first time you've watched Babylon 5, and she's let us know some of your reactions. Uh, so let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Uh, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I, have to, I have to dip back in time because I always remember Babylon 5 as a show that was on another channel when I was flipping to other things. Um <laughs> And every time I sort of flipped past it back in the day, like when on its original airing, I just sort of see, you know, saw people with strange makeup talking in hallways. And I just sort of thought, this looks ridiculous. I'm moving on. And so it, there was a bit of a stigma, probably most of it, um, you know, self-created uh, on this show for a long time. So when I heard that uh, that Erica and then later you two were, were fans of the show, I said, okay, well, I'll, I'm, I'm not going to poo-poo it. I mean, that was the mid-90s. I was a different person back then. And it's um, it's interesting because, you know, my knowledge of science fiction back in the mid-90s was probably like most other people's. It was all Star Trek. That's when Star Trek ruled the roost, you know. The next generation was sort of winding down. Deep Space Nine was, you know, in full force. Voyager was to come. It was all made in that similar style. So to see this Babylon 5 show sort of exist on the outside of that whole Star Trek universe, it's it's interesting to see. I've always felt like Babylon 5 has a bit of a British sensibility to it. It was certainly popular, more popular in Britain than it was in America at the time that it was being released, I think. But you're way more familiar with British sci-fi than I am. What do you think of to that, Stephen? I think that might be a point because at that point, um, sci-fi in, in, in the UK was pretty much done. I mean, when Doctor Who was cancelled in 1989, it would, that was it for the most part. You had Red Dwarf. As, you know, a comedy sci-fi mm-hmm. show that was sort of, you know, in and out for six weeks at a time every 18 months or so. So maybe this show became popular in the UK because it was, you know, it, it seemed it, it sort of filled the void, so to speak, you know. Um, there's, there's British actors, it seems, every episode. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a lot more fun to play Spot the Actor than I thought it would, to be honest. That's, that's one of my <laughs> most, uh, favorite games so far, is every episode mm-hmm. I can pretty much see, oh, I recognize him from Doctor Who or The Prisoner or The Man from Uncle or Sapphire and Steel or something like that. So there is, yep. there is a certain British sensibility to it, but I haven't pinned it down to anything other than it might have just been the only thing on at the time. Okay. Now, to be fair, we're only a few episodes in, but do you have a sense of something about the show that um, had Erica so interested in it? Well, she's said that um, <laughs> we've talked about her and she's in the room, but not even answering. So I'm going to be going <laughs> to tread lightly here. Uh, but, be careful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like any show, I suppose, sometimes things just sort of strike you at the right time, you know, and... Uh, Looking at it now, I mean, it's, it's tough to sort of imagine, you know, you digging back into the, into the recent past, into the early nineties and picking up on a show that you had never seen before and become a huge fan of it. But if you're watching it at the time, you know, and you're sort of what college era, I suppose, you're sort of looking for a kind of mm-hmm. a, an ongoing space opera that, that no one else is really kind of 
watching. It, it almost seemed like an underdog show, so to speak. And so maybe that was what perhaps got her hooked on it as well. I'm not too sure. The comedian, uh, Sarah Benincasa, uh, was on Twitter a few days ago having just, like, discovered The Simpsons for the first time. And it's just Wow. Astonishing. For the first time. And she she wrote a column about it uh, for uh, Playboy.com. But, you know, she's tweeting during the uh, Every Simpsons Ever marathon that's going on on, um, on one of the Fox networks over here. And somebody responded to her and she retweeted that see, watching her tweets as she's discovering The Simpsons for the first time was like watching a baby fawn learn to walk. Um, <laughs> Aww, I like that. Yeah. Is Stephen a baby fawn uh, watching Babylon 5, Erica? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and every bit as adorable. I don't want to say too much because I, I don't want to give anything away, but it is knowing that the show has a five-year arc and, and that some of the things we are seeing now are going to lead to other things later. It is very fun to watch what the reaction is, uh, knowing what's coming to, you know, sometimes be like, oh, he's got the wrong idea about that, or oh, he has no idea how right he is, or this is going to go in a completely different direction. It's It's very exciting. And is the is the five year arc uh, knowing that there is a five year arc to this show? Is it a blessing or a curse, Stephen? It can be a bit of a curse because you know it, it's kind of what scares me away from watching a lot of HBO shows and these ensemble dramas, which sort of you know have the audacity to assume that you're going to stick with it for five years uh, to see the final payoff. You know, amid all the very you know the shaky beginnings that any show sort of has. So, but this one, there, there seems to be a lot more standalone episodes that you can sort of enjoy it as a, you know, just a weekly series without having to be tied up or, you know, or you could jump in anywhere basically and start watching this show and, and not really feel like you're lost. Unlike a, a traditional show with a, with a big, you know, multi-year arc. So let's go ahead and get started. We are up to the episode and the sky full of stars. What you need to know Ten years ago, the Earth-Mimbari War was coming to a head. The Mimbari had entered Earth's solar system, and Earth Force was scrambling every last available fighter ship to hold the line. Our station commander, Sinclair, was leading a squadron that got torn apart, and unable to do anything else in his damaged fighter, he tried to ram a Mimbari cruiser. He passed out, and when he came to, he learned that it was 24 hours later, and that the Mimbari had inexplicably surrendered to Earth and ended the war. In the aftermath, the idea for the Babylon Project took hold, a space station in neutral territory to act as an interstellar United Nations. In the present day, we have seen an anti-alien movement take hold on Earth, repeating the same fear of the other that spawned intolerance against those of other religions, nationalities, or races throughout our history. In this episode, two mysterious men board the station and are clearly up to no good. We learn that there are regulations about when and how much security personnel can gamble in the casinos, and one officer is in over his head. Then Commander Sinclair wakes up to find that the station is incommunicado and empty, except for himself and one other person, who helpfully explains that Sinclair has been abducted and is currently trapped inside a virtual reality machine. The interrogator pushes Sinclair to recall the missing 24 hours from the Battle of the Line. In the meantime, the command staff search for Sinclair, finding the compromised officer dead in the process. At the pivotal moment, when Sinclair recovers all of his missing memories, he breaks free of the machine and injures his captors. He staggers out into the station, disoriented and hallucinating, but Delenn manages to talk him down. So this is um, what I would call a pivotal episode in this season, um, in this story arc, it's going to, as we, when we get to spoiler territory, we'll talk about all the things that it introduces. Um, but not but in front of you, Stephen. Not yet, <laughs> no. Um, but what did you guys think about the execution of it? Don't all start at once. I'm the guest. I'm too polite to go first. <laughs> Stop being right. so Canadian. Okay, Chip, what did you think? This, this episode is more important for what it introduces than what it does. It's not the it's not the best executed uh, episode, but I like the moodiness about it. I like the otherworldliness about it. Um, we talked we talked before about the prisoner references in uh, Mind War when Bester is introduced. Uh, everything from the um, the salute and the be seeing you and all this other stuff. Um, side note: 
um, Knight 2, the one who was in the uh, virtual reality holonet with Sinclair, at one point, they were trying to get Patrick McGowan to be that character. And before then, Walter Koenig was originally uh, supposed to be in that role. Right. Uh, but um, it is a, it is more surreal. It is more moody. Um, the thing that I keep coming back to as one of the things that I really love about this episode is the, the, the small touch of uh, Sinclair opening and closing his fist as an indicate as uh, it's not explicitly stated, but you fi- you figure out as the episode goes on that he's trying to regain motor control. And he's trying to retrain himself how to operate his own body so that he can try to escape. Uh, it, it's it's little things like that that make me enjoy this as sort in, in a surrealist um, sort of intrigue kind of mode. I get a little tired of seeing the same space sequence repeated over and over again, um, mm-hmm. but we get a little bit more added to it each time. So it's actually pretty good at feeding you the information that you need as you go along. And the last uh, positive thing that I want to mention is I like the way that the command staff, when Sinclair goes missing, there's no melodrama to this. They're professionals. They're doing a job. Uh, The commander of a space station like this would be at risk at any point in time. So Garibaldi coldly mentions that, uh, you know, send the maintenance bots out to look for a body. And there's no clutching at pearls over this or anything like this. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, throughout we leave that, the... Throughout we leave that to Delenn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but through, throughout this early season, I've really enjoyed that Star Trek, the command staff of a starship, is typically... It's not really military. It's, it's, almost, it, it's almost clubby. Maybe not. Maybe less so in some of the early um, uh, classic series stuff, but certainly by the time you got to Next Generation, it was more like a, you know, a hotel in space and um, and all these different guests uh, sort of milling around and occasionally making decisions to fire phasers or something like that. The uh, lead the lead characters in Earth Force in Babylon Five, at least at this stage of the storyline, they're written and portrayed as professionals, just straight up professionals, and I find that really refreshing. That's that's a bit of random stuff. Um, I have a hard time thinking about this episode outside the context of the whole rest of the series, though. So uh, I have a little bit of a hard time assessing it. Okay, Erica, what Not about me. you? <laughs> I, I have the, I have the same trouble and and. It's hard because, you know, my feelings on Sinclair are maybe not the warmest and fuzziest. And this story really does revolve around him. Um, it does. I love, the, I love the ideas of this. The, you know, being trapped in your own mind. I, I, I adored that scene where he wakes up and he gets himself a glass of water from that really cool picture with a glass that's like tucked inside the top of it. That was very, mm-hmm. just a nice little set touch. Um, and then realizes the computer is off and, you know, wandering around what the heck is going on. Everything's off. Like that's, that is a nightmare scenario to me. So mm-hmm. I, I, I appreciated seeing it on the screen, but he, again, he's not my favorite character or actor mm-hmm. portraying a character. So it, once it becomes really all about him and being pushed to remember it, it falls off a little bit for me. But if, again, if this was, if I was reading a book of this, I think I would just lap it up with a spoon because it, that's, that's that kind of weird science fiction, surreal going into the mind kind of stuff is right up my alley. Um, and, and it's interesting, Chip, that you had mentioned that Patrick McGowan was supposed to be possibly this, this uh, interrogator character, because right after watching it, Stephen immediately said, okay, before we record this podcast, you need to see at least the first episode of The Prisoner. And so now, <laughs> between then and now, we've watched two episodes because, oh my god, I love The Prisoner, you guys. Where has it been all my life? What was I doing? I was wasting my time. <laughs> so, Stephen, I want to know why why you immediately said I needed to watch The Prisoner and wh- what was it about this that made that sing for you? It was mostly this, the, 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 you know, the main thrust of the episode was an interrogation of of um i'm awful at um <laughs> character names that's the one thing I, so i keep saying michael sinclair O'Hare. sinclair because i just keep saying actors names um you know is that whole thing about him basically being kidnapped and being interrogated which is just like you know it's kind of alluded to you know number six being taken out and being placed in the village and being interrogated and the fact that in the credits and this is what really convinced me uh is that him and his helper, Christopher Neem and his helper were called Night One and Night Two. Christopher mm-hmm. Neem being Night Two, as in number two. And I thought, oh, there's a definite illusion here. 
Um, and the, the, the seed was first, um, sown when, what's his name? Bester said, uh, be seeing you at the full hand salute three or four weeks ago. So, right. So it's been, it's been building and I realized that, okay, I think, I think t- the time is now to start watching, watching the show because I've, I've heard that there are a lot of prisoner references and allusions, um, to it in this story. Um, and, and there's a couple other things in this, in, in this episode, which alludes to future prisoner episodes. So that's why I sort of thought, okay, it's time to start watching it. Fair enough. Um, for me, really great ideas. Um, not 100% sold on the execution. Um, I thought uh, the setup, the the intro sequence um, for a few minutes really grated on me because you had the, the the two conspirators, you know, who give the obvious stare and nod at each other. And um, <laughs> then when one of them is answering the door for the other, he makes it very clear. It's like, oh, look, I've got a knife in case this person on the other side of the door is not who I think it is. And... Both of them, at least for a while, really chewing the scenery. And uh, it also made me stop and scratch my head that why would they need to identify their target like that? I, I didn't quite get that. I mean, if they knew they were looking for people colluding with the Mimbari, um I would have thought Sinclair would have been like a supremely obvious person and they wouldn't have necessarily needed you know, the, the fancy hollow screen shot of him to show um, who they were after. Um, yeah, so that, that it, and the knife are clear moments where you're playing to the camera, not playing the scene. Yeah. I don't know. I felt like, I feel like secret agents quite often are, are at least in, in fiction, I don't know about real ones, are mm-hmm. sent out to places where they don't necessarily know what they're doing. You know, you will arrive here and you will get your assignment once you have arrived and it will, you know, self-destruct in five more seconds after you've read it. So I just took it as that that kind of a thing. Like, they were sent out, they didn't know what they were there to do, they arrived, and then they got the word, oh, it's supposed to be this guy, he happens to be in charge. Well, that's all right, we're businessmen, let's get to it. Maybe. I, for, for me, I would have... I would have thought that Sinclair was well known enough because of his role in the Battle of the Line. I imagine that at the time it would have been uh, hugely publicized. Uh, they had to go through hearings and, you know, essentially prove his innocence at the time uh, based on the information that they had. So it it just struck me as a little bit odd. But other than that, some things that I did like um, – I did like, again, you know, Chip said it was a bit repetitive, but, you know, you would get a little bit more in the um, in the memory sequences every time. Uh, they'd expand a little bit. Um, we got to see some of the emotions that Sinclair has alluded to in previous episodes. We, we've heard him give a speech or two here and there about his experiences at the line, but here we finally get to see a great deal of what's driving him. Um, we finally get the admission that even though it's basically just sort of backfilling exposition, but we finally get the admission that it took him a long time to be able to look at the Mimbari and not want to um, not want to attack uh, things like that. That it took him a while to heal from the experience. Um, th- things like that. I appreciated having the information, although I didn't always appreciate the way it was delivered. I like this episode myself. I, okay, <laughs> as as a new person going in. This mm-hmm. is far and away the be- this is far and away the best episode so far. Oh, what um, ma- what makes it that? What what makes well, it that for you? Well, uh, honestly, it um uh approaching it from a <laughs> from a doyalist point of view as opposed to a Watsonian, there's a phrase I learned from Verity podcast, uh <laughs> is that this this episode seems to be the first one that's properly made for 16 by 9 uh as opposed to shot 4 by 3 with 16 by 9, you know, in mind, you know, the shots are just tighter. The you know, it just seems like a much more tighter thing. And that's that's not the show's fault because if you're watching it back in 1994, you're watching it on a four by three monitor. Everything sort of looks fine, but watching it on the on the DVDs, it just looks like a really zoomed out shot that you're not really sure why the camera is covering so much of the scenery and beside the actors and everything. And here they're actually using. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some great shots and some stark lighting and great camera shots and everything. Um, I, I made note to take note of the directors, Janet Greek, who's directing yes. her first of uh, 12 or 13 episodes from what I saw. Yes. She, yeah, she, yeah. She, yeah, she's one of the good ones. She really is. I mean, it shows immediately, like just, you know, like you said, from the from the matter of factness that Garibaldi sort of treats, you know, the commander's disappearance and, and, uh, and the scene, you know, there's a great scene where, um, 
Michael O'Hara is standing in one place and Christopher Neem just keeps walking towards him in another shot. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it just goes on. It just goes on and on. It just, there's, there's, you know, the cut back to, um, O'Hara is just standing there and back to Neem when it's just walking towards it. And the lighting's great in there. It just, it was just a visually interesting episode to actually watch. And, and sometimes good direction can sort of, you know, transform the regular cast as well. I know you've <laughs> one of the regular features so much so that I'm, I'm expecting theme music at some point in the near future <laughs> is how did Michael O'Hare do this week? And I thought this was his best <laughs> performance. And I don't know if that's just him doing a good job or if perhaps he just didn't have as much direction as he might've needed in previous episodes. You know, that could have been an indication of why his performance was better. I think he has more trouble in episodes that demand a wide range that mm-hmm. if he if he's got to pretend if he's got to be, pretend to be a bad guy which is is you know it's the it's the biggest bugbear but if he has a if he's in a consistent mental place if the if the character's in a consistent mental place in the episode O'Hare seems to do better I think mm-hmm. um and, and in this one He's haunted. He's he's got he's got to play haunted, and and this is this really does, for the first time I think in the whole series, this really pushes the character's arc a bit. What happened at the Battle of the Line? Did you consider that in watching this uh, for the first time, Stephen? Did you consider that to be a motivating question for the series, and did that change for you after this episode? Honestly, uh, I remember going into the um, – I think they mentioned the, the war last episode. Um, mm-hmm. Forgive me for the lack of specifics. I've only watched each episode once, you understand. But uh, You're right. Um, and I, th- I think leading into this episode, I was thinking, I wonder if they're going to mention that war again or something like that. And here they actually deal with it full on. And so I was thinking, okay, now we're actually – and that's another reason why I like this episode because now it felt substantial. Um, mm-hmm. This is this is a thing – I mean, Babylon 5 is a show that – wouldn't be made like this nowadays. It wouldn't be 22, 26 episodes a year. They'd be 13, and they would all deal with a certain thing. There wouldn't be any, you know, non-important throwaway episodes, if you will. Uh, Less world-building. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they would all just be dealing with the the matter at hand. And this just felt like one of those episodes, you know, with the mystery going on about what Delenn was doing there with the Great Council and, you know, why why she was there, why why she kidnapped um um <laughs> Michael O'Hare, Sinclair. Yes. <laughs> uh, sometime sometime before the end of the series, I will remember his name. <laughs> Um, I'm still getting Minbari and Centauri uh, confused. I have to think that Centauri is, uh, reminds me of Ferengi, uh, who were cared about money, so therefore sent Ferengi Centauri. Now I understand who they are. Um, <laughs> but, but <laughs> I have to, I have to do these things. But it, it's, it's, it's those, it's the beginning of the mystery that I, that really hooked me in. And it was well told as well on a, on a production side of things as well. So it was those two, twin factors that really helped it along. Plus, Christopher Neve was a great, great actor with a great performance. He, he was in uh, an unreleased Doctor Who episode called Shada from 1979, and mm-hmm. he was great in that from what bits exist, and he was, you know, I, I think I said to him, this is no disrespect to him, he's a, he's a poor man's Julian Glover. I could see Julian Glover doing this kind of role mm-hmm. with, with as much aplomb. Totally. Yeah, Neem's actually one of the very few actors um, who's almost run the table on science fiction uh doctor who blake seven star trek babylon five earth two um and of course murder she wrote which is possibly you know again where jms tends to mine so many of these actors something else um that i really appreciated about the episode uh, of course is the giant leap in uh the use of special effects um this episode actually has more shots that required the use of special effects than the gathering uh, you know, the two-hour pilot, twice as long, but this had so much more in the way of rendering uh, the spaceships, uh, the flights, and that sort of thing. Uh, JMS talked about it at the time um, on Records SF TV B5, um, just how ridiculously happy he was that not only were they getting the amount in, but the quality was so good that what they were producing at the time was really looking good. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because 
watching it, I, it didn't even occur to me that there was more special effects and, and more, you know, effects shots in this than normal. And I think that that is that that says something really good about it, because I'm watching it from a, a a nowadays perspective this time around. And, you know, we see FX shots left and right in, in a lot of TV shows now. So to me, it just, it played out as completely natural. And these shots, which did, you know, yeah, I think they don't look as good as, as something created now would, but they certainly didn't look clunky and, and bad. So it, it just seemed very fitting. I thought it, it flowed really well with the action. And maybe we did see a few things over and over again, but, um, but I thought that it just it worked really seamlessly and it didn't stick out to me as, oh, we're trying to showcase all of this crazy special effects just for the sake of it. It fit with a story and it, it just I just thought it worked really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I like the way it's sort of dreamlike the um, special the we've had ship combat sequences before, most most notably in uh, Midnight on the Firing Line um, and. This time around, I think they said that this, the those shots were step printed, um, or at least digitally made out to look like they were step printed. It's a dreamlike sort of a stop motion blurry quality uh, to yeah. those fight scenes. And uh, considering that uh, he's hallucinating and flashing back and all this other stuff, I like that dreamlike quality. Mm-hmm. It 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 made a, it made them seem more real and less CG. Uh, I thought, yeah, I, 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 I wasn't sure if it was intended to be dreamlike quality. I just sort of assumed that that was like, you know, it just sort of a, a, a choice of the director, perhaps. And so let's show it a little slower because it looks, it looks like it has more weight, perhaps, with the explosions and everything. I don't know if it was supposed to be dreamy or not, but I, I liked it a lot better than the the model effects that we've seen so far. Any other things with uh, the plot that to chew on? Uh, we get the hints. Uh, that night one and night two are from somewhere that will send more people if they fail, more will come. So they're apparently part of a bigger organization. Um, their rhetoric certainly feels the same as Home Guard, but the approach feels different. Do we have any? You know, I I am watching this, you know, I've, I've seen the entire series a few times through, and I have to admit, I don't actually remember who sent them or where they came from. Well, it's not so, said in this episode. And yeah, I'm it's, not, not, it's not spelled out this time. but Yeah. Right. And I mean, maybe it is later, and I honestly don't remember if it is or not. So for me, it was actually, I think I got a little bit of that frisson of a, a new person watching and being like, oh, who are these guys? Where did they come from? This is this is exciting. So I kind of enjoyed that from a, a, a newbie sort of a... Uh, standpoint this time okay i like the uh, i like the world building and uh i do want to check in with steven on this because how do you feel about earth and the sort of the the science fiction universe that has been built up to this point um when we watch doctor who we're watching we're, we're getting a snapshot of a different earth pretty much every time that they're not in the contemporary the contemporary world they're off on another planet, and we get a snapshot of it in just 45 minutes, and then we're done, and we never, almost never come back to it. Does the world that's being built in this uh, show feel real to you? Uh, and, and how would you compare it to Blake 7? Well, there's it's not very Earth-centric. I mean, you know, most of the people are, are human on the ship, um, but it's it's funny that we never really see much of earth uh, or even hear much about it i i one thing i don't understand is how far away from earth they actually are um or where they are in the universe i suppose i'd like to see a map of some sport but i never knew what where deep space nine was either even though they were just sort of at the edge of some outskirts and you know it wasn't that important is it is other is orbiting another planet but bajor wasn't it mm-hmm in Deep Space Nine, yeah. are they even orbiting a, uh, orbiting a planet in uh, Babylon Five? Uh, they are. Yes, yes. Epsilon you, you see Three. It in, yeah, you see it in the background, a couple of shots here and there. Yeah, that's what I thought. We never do. We visit there? Have we visited there yet? I don't think we have. Have we? Not yet. No. Nope. Okay. It's it's it's, it's odd that you know such a large planet that uh, that is right there in every single shot. Well, there are loads of lifeless yet. planets out there. I suppose so. I suppose so. Um, it's. It's. I'm getting used to the world. Let's put it that way. I like you know. I, I haven't even got the Minbari and Centauri straight in my mind yet. So that <laughs> it's good. It might take some time to realize where all the politics were, and I, I honestly didn't really understand that there was a war between the Minbari and, and Earth um, until this episode really put it on the line explicitly. Mm-hmm. Because um, Sinclair and Delenn seemed friendly enough that I can't imagine that they'd be, 
you know, at each other's throats 10 years ago, but I, I could see, I could see the Centauri and, and humans perhaps being that way just because they seem to be very antagonistic towards each other. So it's, it's taking some time for me to get my head around it a little bit, but I, I blame my inability to uh, grasp such simple concepts as, uh, <laughs> as opposed to blaming the show. <laughs> Anything else that we really, really want to say before we go off into our spoiler territory? I would like to just quick do my usual check in on the uh, the characters. Certainly, there, were, there wasn't there wasn't as much this time. I mean, like I said, this really revolved around Commander Sinclair. Yeah, but we did get a little bit of character building in a couple of other places. Uh, we got a little bit more background for uh, Doctor Franklin. Right. Um, Stephen was talking about how <clears throat> during the Earthman Bari War, they were he had been ordered to hand over his xenobiological you know, files, and because he had taken an oath to protect all life, he decided to destroy those files rather than turn them over to the government to be used as, you know, in biological warfare. So I thought that was kind of cool. And also then the idea that he was hitchhiking on Starliners, you know, just, you know, selling his doctor services to be go anywhere and see anything really gives us a little bit of insight into what kind of a what kind of a character he is. He's he's a wanderer. He's somebody who's very, very curious and just wants to know more and more, which is kind of a, a fitting thing for a research type scientist who is interested in xenobiology and, and aliens and stuff. I, I like and that. Imagine. And let's let's add to that what we learned about him before um, about how ambitious he is. So he's not yes. he's not some sort of mystic hippie uh, wandering around. Um, <laughs> right. You know, trying to do good and, um, and and sampling the mushrooms where he finds them. He's you know, he, he wants to accomplish stuff. So I like I, I like what. Uh, what he reveals here, uh, what that says about not just his uh, sort of his moral backbone, um, you know, he's definitely no, no um, shrinking flower when it comes to uh, his own notions of what's right or wrong. But he, he's an ambitious explorer. He's going to look for stuff and he's going to try to accomplish something while doing it. And I really like that about him. And, and he's even doing that. He's even doing that right here and now. I mean, mm-hmm. he's he says he's never seen him in Bari, you know, up close before. That's been perfectly healthy. So he's he's been actively reaching out and asking, "Hey, Delenn, can you come in? Can I look you over? You know, for my files, basically. I just I want to know what Minbaris are like, medically speaking, when they're in good shape." So he does that, and then that also gives us the opportunity to get a little bit more sort of interesting Delenn background, or rather, lack of background. Exactly. Asks, what, what were you doing during the war? And just oh. Well, topic for another time yeah and, after yeah, then we like, see her face Eep. yeah after a couple of episodes of you know seeing delenn develop into uh the mentor to lanier the the good friend of her of her poet you know we've had a couple of episodes where we feel like we've gotten to know delenn better and it's like oh hey wait a minute uh no we don't <laughs> so yeah that that was a very interesting um sort of sidestep in her character to throw her right back into the mystery mm-hmm yeah, she's mysterious. I mean, I, I, I just thought she was sort of like harmless um, at the <laughs> beginning of this this episode, you know, the beginning of this series, and the layers keep getting added on, and then all of a sudden, like at the end of this episode, there's this, you know, she turns around and there's this other strange Minbari with, you know, with cataracts in in her closet <laughs> who she's talking to, and I, I didn't know who this person was, so like, all of a sudden, she's gone from like. You know, boring also ran to one of the more intriguing characters in this in this show. Mm-hmm. And I also I do like the fact that at the end, when when Delenn is told by that cataract Mimbari uh, that that Sinclair is going to have to be put down, basically, if he ever remembers what happened to him, I do appreciate the fact that she looks she looks somewhat troubled. She mm-hmm. you know she's not gung ho about it and like oh let's just you know bump him off to just in case. She she seems like their their friendship may actually be a friendship because she's not comfortable with the idea of having to to kill him. So I mm-hmm. like that because it makes her a little bit more. I, I I can side with her a little bit still, even though I know that there's something funky going on in the background that we're not quite sure what it is yet mm-hmm. yeah she's she's i would what's that line that she had i think it was in the gathering i would never tell you anything that was not in your best interest um mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know forgotten that that's good the friendship between those two characters has been told and shown by the writers writer mainly um mm-hmm. but um but now we're seeing uh some potential some potential fissures in that relationship and that's 
again, we keep going back to Jakar's line. No one here is exactly what he appears. You know, uh, that's this episode really delivers on that. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was interesting to see, you know, you mentioned the friendship between Sinclair and Delenn. Um, how I was expecting Sinclair to sort of confront her or sort of ask her nicely, I suppose, you know, why 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 did I see you in my vision or anything like that? But but when when she asks, you know, is there anything else you remember about your experience? He says, no, nothing at all. And then he goes back and records his thoughts that she was there. So there's, you know, there's distrust there on his part now, which makes that whole relationship also interesting. So there's a, there's a lot of portents of, um, of doom and intrigue to come thanks to this episode. I was, I wasn't giving up on this, this, this show by any means, but, uh, this, this and I think the, um, the first one with Bester is sort of, you know, whetted the appetite for more for me. Okay. That is just what we intended. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And and, and it gives our podcast a little bit of an Adventures of the Wife in Space uh, kind of vibe to it that I like (laughs) as well. (laughs) Are we ready to move on? I think it's about time to space, Stephen. Yep. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Really? Can't take you anywhere. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, then. Um, We thank you for listening to uh, the audio guide to Babylon 5. If you are a new viewer of this show, this is the point where you should jump off. And uh, we will see you all in a couple of weeks. And don't forget your homework for next week, which is the episode Death Walker. Um, As always, you can find us online at b5audioguide.com for the website, the podcasts, the forum threads. Please feel free to stop by and uh, share your thoughts on the spoiler thread or the non-spoiler thread as appropriate. You can also find us on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide on those platforms. We And something new, I must interject. We're on Stitcher Radio now. That's right. Yes. Those of you who... Oh, yeah. Wanted us on Stitcher can now get us that way as well. Thank you all for listening, and we will see everyone, almost everyone, on the other side of the jump gate. (laughs) Thanks, Stephen. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you, everybody. And welcome back. Now that Stephen has taken his ears safely away, we can now talk about um, how this episode fits in uh, the rest of the series, the rest of the story arc, uh, which it essentially kicks off. Um, Some of the things that we can talk about now um, include um, some of the um, a couple of the actors that were going to become important or characters that are com- going to become important uh, later on. Um, and there's also that really neat shot of uh, a newspaper that Garibaldi has that has all kinds of intriguing things to be found. Mm-hmm. That one was made for freeze framing. But before we get started, can I just say it was so much fun listening to Stephen go, yeah, that Delenn, she's uh, kind of mad, but uh, she's starting to grow on me. She might be an interesting <laughs> character one of these days. That and, so and, 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 and. I think I'll probably remember his Sinclair's name by the end of the season. And I was just like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, little does he know. Oh, boy. <sighs> yeah, see, this is why it's so fun to watch it with him. Just be like, hmm, yep, I'm not saying mm-hmm. a word. Yeah. <sighs> Sorry, I had to get that out of my system. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, well, one of the things, um, to talk about, uh, is Garibaldi's second in command. Uh, we saw him briefly in Mind War, uh, as he, um, checked Bester and his partner onto the station. And here he actually gets to be a more integral part of the team, you know, d- directing part of the search for Sinclair and all that. Um, so. Convenient that. Yes, he's, mm-hmm. he's being built up into being, you know, someone that Garibaldi can rely on. So, and, you know, just as we really start to get to know him, um, well, no, he isn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he sort of answers some of the questions that are lingering at, in this episode, such as how they get Benson's body off of the station without anybody seeing, you know. Well, the answer is something that you won't figure out until uh, the end of the season is that basically Jack's in on it. He's part of the conspiracy. He he was the one who checked in Bester and Kelsey in Mind War, and he's just well positioned to um, lead the search. Um, and in the meantime, 
um, get a body off of the station as we go. So I really like that by planning the series so far in advance that uh, JMS was able to insert this character right here and say, you're going to be the explanation for all the inconsistencies uh, going up to this point, and then you're going to shoot your boss in the back. I think that's just great. Do, do we know for sure that he's part of that group? I'm trying to remember. He He's definitely part of whatever conspiracy winds up assassinating Santiago. But I'm trying to remember whether night one and night two, do we find out that they're explicitly part of that group? I mean, we, we do find out that they were backed by the government in some way. I'm just trying to remember if it was if it was made clear that it was all together. I don't remember off the top of my head. I Like I said, I really don't remember <laughs> the exact mm-hmm. intricacies of, of who is, is planning what and who's responsible mm-hmm. for what. So I'm not sure. I think it's made clear that these guys in this episode are involved with somebody pretty high up in the government. Right. Uh, and and it's made clear that uh, Jack's involved with Psycor, uh, especially in his last appearance when he says, mm-hmm. we will be seeing you to um, to Garibaldi. It's yeah. he, he may not be involved in every conspiracy on the station, but he's involved in enough of them that okay. you might as well apply it. Because okay. when you mentioned Psycor now, that was another thing that um, at the time was discussed on Records SFB5, the fact that these two went to all this trouble to create this virtual reality thing um, when, you know, if they just managed to get a powerful telepath incognito onto the station to do it for them, that that would have been easier. So, which was one of the reasons that Psycor was sort of separate from this thing in my mind. Hmm. You know, that we get the passing by reference that Talia is not powerful enough or trained to to find Sinclair uh, in Delenn's conversation with Susan. So that, you know, the JMS at least, you know, took a minute to explain that. I don't know. I'm, we'll have to pay attention as the rest of the se- series goes on mm-hmm. uh, to see if it, if it is a little bit clearer. Because, like I said, I don't remember right now. I think he is involved in this one. And um, I think that we can take some we can take some time maybe um, later on to mm-hmm. um, to connect all the dots and put up a put up an operations board uh, <laughs> like in uh, like in the severed streets plug for Mr. Paul Cornell yeah. um, but uh, wait a minute we need Deb we need spreadsheets yeah that too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was one thing something that jumped out at me with Franklin because he's one of my favorite characters and I'm always paying attention to what he does um, the fact that his comment his quote of all life is sacred as he describes to Delenn why he destroyed his notes that's going to turn around and bite him in the butt in just a couple of episodes with believers when oh, right. for him, the life is more sacred than the parents' beliefs, than, than, than the belief system of the family, you know, and, and, and he's going to get crushed for it. So oh, that, yeah. that, that jumped out at me. I totally did not connect those dots. But now that you mentioned that, yes, that is, it's just another example of the consistency of the characters and what happens to them throughout the mm-hmm. throughout the show that just warms the cockles of my fangirl heart. Yeah, exactly. there, there really aren't that many moments on Babylon 5 where characters act out of character up until, say, the very end. Um, and even then, um, and I'm, 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 of, ta- of course, talking about Lanier. But mm-hmm. uh, and even then, JMS makes an effort to set it up. He just doesn't stick the landing. But mm-hmm. uh, aside from that, characters are fairly well in character throughout. Yeah, exactly. Something else uh, to point out is that that last scene with um, the cataracts, Mimbari, actually sticks out uh, like a sore thumb in the general context. It was written with a purpose, assuming that Sinclair was going to be there for the entire story arc. Um, and apparently, and, and that and that the whole the whole battle of the line mystery was exclusively about Mimbari souls being reborn in human bodies, and not about Valen. So, yeah, yeah, because I wondered that one of the things in my notes was because some of this is a little fuzzy for me still because it's been a few mm-hmm. you know a year and a half since I watched this all. It, you know, is it really that big of a deal if he remembers? I mean, like they're they're going to kill him. Like, why not talk to him about it first? But I suppose if. If that was supposed to be sort of the central thing that that kept on with with the same character throughout, that would give it a little bit more heft. What uh, what JMS has said, and he said different things at different times when uh, you know before the Sinclair change and afterward. Um, one consistent thing was that the Gray Council and Mimbari Society, who would have been in a position to know about the soul migration or Valen or whatever, that none of them were 
of one mind uh, that uh, there were some Membari who refused to believe that Sinclair could be the reincarnation of Valen. They refused to believe that Membari souls were being reborn in human bodies. And we get hints of that with the Membari intrigue with uh, Nerun later on in the series and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, if you retcon it a bit and the guy says, if he remembers, you must kill him, you wouldn't believe that a Membari concerned about the reincarnation of Valen would want to kill him. So I've just got to assume that that guy just simply doesn't believe it. Nope, mm-hmm. nope, 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 uh-huh. nope. Can't happen. Yep. Yeah. That's my head cannon anyway. Okay. Works for me. And yeah, that works. And something else to, to chew on, like we said, the, the newspaper headline, we get a nice, decent shot of it that, you know, lets somebody grab a freeze frame, certainly lets you maybe spot one or two things. But there's a ton of stuff in there when, when you look at it. Um, of course, there's the top headline where we mentioned Home Guard. We've got somebody named Jacob Lester who is convicted of an attack um, or an attempted attack on the Membari embassy. So we know that Home Guard is still trying to do things, but at least these people are being still being treated as criminals mm-hmm. rather than uh, patriots. So, you know, he, he, he is not a Clive Bundy figure. He is, um, you know, been pursued and been convicted of, of his attack. We've also got uh, that little bit, Narn Settle Ragesh 3 Controversy. The problem is we have no idea how it was settled. <laughs> um, but there's that little thing, you know, that Ragesh 3's sort of been sort of swept under the rug si- since the first couple of episodes. Um, so we finally get, you know, JMS takes the opportunity to put this little throwaway. It's like, okay, it's been resolved. I don't know how, but, you know, it, it's don't worry about it anymore. And then, of course, it'll come back again in a few episodes when Londo uh, makes trouble for Jakar, the religious ceremony. And Londo specifically says he's screwing Jakar over because of Ragesh 3. Mm-hmm. And then we also have the first seeds of um, the eventual Earth Civil War with the Psycor being questioned about, is it right for them to endorse the vice president, uh, Clark, uh, in any way? Apparently, the Psycor shouldn't be taking sides in politics. Yeah, so, that sounds um, like just a bad, bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> exactly. And then another one is um, asking the question, is there something living in hyperspace? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. And of course, and of course the, the shadows turn out to be hiding there at least. I don't know about living there, but they're certainly mm-hmm. hiding there. And uh, towards the end of the season, we have uh, Kefler, Kefler um, flying That's, out. That's uh, next season, actually. Is it? St- okay. So season two. In, in season two, um, as that arc gets going. Uh, He goes to investigate because he's realized something is there. Um, Something else that I'd forgotten about until I went looking online, all the way into Crusade, there's the episode of the Excalibur discovering something called the Fen that, yes, actually lives in the hyperspace area. Oh, yeah. That's ringing a very faint bell. Yeah. So, um, you know, JMS plays the long game sometimes with some of this stuff. (laughs) And the one that really amused me, given um, our societies trying to wrestle with copyright and digital files, and if you, you know, download the book and then um, put the book on something else, or if you download the CD and then put it onto your hard drive, all of these questions, there's the question about this company called BookZap, and apparently... In, in the headline, the question is, you know, if you download the digital book into your brain, apparently that's a thing they can do now. Um, who owns it? You know, if it's inside <laughs> your head, um, which I just made me laugh when I took another look at the list, given all our DRM issues that we have these days. That's funny. You know, actually, that reminds me of another another thing that kind of popped up in my head to amuse me during this episode is at the end when Sinclair goes back to his, his quarters and starts mm-hmm. leaving his personal his personal log like i th- th- it, to me in that this day and age it's baffling that he trusts this like super secret information that he's not even telling Delenn to his electronic personal log it seems ridiculous to put something that important on an official file cuz i feel like you know the government's probably going to be busting into that and finding out his his secrets really quick or some hacker yeah. will find it and put it on the uh, in- interstellar news network or something like i was just like oh don't yeah. do that I was totally expecting a line about uh, double secret encryption or something mm-hmm. like that. That nope. crossed my mind too, and you know, I was actually trying to think: is there was there any other way that JMS could have had him present that? You know, yeah. it's um, it 
if he was just talking to himself, musing to himself, I don't think it would have played as well. So no, he actually right. had to to commit it. That was the only way they could figure it out. But yeah, that same way, especially with the the nude celebrity photo thing going on the last few days. Yeah, why you know why would you put something that personal that you needed to keep to yourself? Why would you mm-hmm. commit it to electronic form? It was a more yeah. innocent time. Apparently. Are there any other things that you guys can think of that play into the rest of the series? Well, I noticed... I think this I, is the one... Oh, go ahead, Eric. Oh, I was just, mine's ahead. just very little. I just kind of noticed, and I don't know if this means anything or if it was just coincidental, uh, but when Sinclair first discovers that he's been abducted, he's trapped inside his head in a, in a machine, he, you know, he shouts, what do you want? And it echoes again and again and again and again. And that just made me think forward to Mr. Morden showing yeah. up and asking that question oh, of yeah. everyone. It's like, ooh. And when he's actually surrounded by the great council he also says who are you so yeah but both of the questions mm-hmm. get popped up i i mm-hmm. noticed that too yeah um the mystery of what happened to sinclair at the battle of the line uh drives the entire first season and this is the one episode that really makes it puts it in the foreground um it was just this sort of thing that had you know there's a hole in your mind minor references here and there but now Sinclair has something to be haunted by for the rest of the se- season, and that's mm-hmm. really good. Totally. Okay. The only other thing I can think of, and um, again, this may just be grasping at things that I'm misremembering, but uh, the fact that we get a little more information about uh, security personnel in general, uh, the idea that they're not supposed to gamble more than a certain amount, um, and yet Benson gets himself in trouble and gets himself in deep. Um, I'm trying to remember whether things like that later on sort of play into a bit into the night watch. Um, the idea that, um, an extra 50 credits for Zach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I don't think it's anything explicit, but I, and I did mention, mean to mention this before we went into spoiler space. Um, but I do like that the red shirts in star Trek are all just generic security guards. They don't have a life of their own. Here's a security guy who just got himself in over his head and is in trouble. You know, again, very few background characters or categories of characters are are, are homogenous. Uh, and I do like that one of the things that motivates this story is the security guard getting in trouble. Because if I recall correctly, original draft of, that Harlan Ellison did of uh, City on the Edge of Forever for Star Trek involved a security guard getting caught dealing drugs or something like that. And Gene Roddenberry's like, nope, 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 got to rewrite that. Right. Um, because security guards wouldn't do that sort of thing. Our, our security guards, just like everybody else in the Babylon 5 universe, are real people. Yeah, mm-hmm. if, nothing else, mistakes. if nothing else, it's a great just piece of world building. And just, you know, you, mm-hmm. you get texture whatever direction you happen to be looking. There's, there's something for you there. I love it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we can't think of anything else, then I guess we're about ready to wrap up this episode. Thank you again, those of you who are re-watching with us for sticking with us and continuing to listen. And uh, we look forward to next time when we will be talking with you about Death Walker. Thank you for listening. This is Shannon and Durham. Chip and Durham. And Erica and Edmonton. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5.